Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. I hope you're well. If you want to come on the radio and play the hugely popular quiz, Can You Get to Number 10? Uh, get in touch with me now, particularly if you're outside the UK, because we always like uh, to have an international listener occasionally, if we can. Uh, but if you're inside the UK, that's also fine. Email me your name and your number and a bit about yourself to matt.chorley at times.radio and we'll get you on the radio very soon. And you can come on and play Can You Get to Number 10? Right, coming up on today's episode, uh, sad news that Clarissa Eden, the wife of Anthony Eden, has died at the age of 101. But we look back on her extraordinary life with her longtime friend, journalist and author Hugo Vickers. Really fascinating conversation. Uh, the thing that comes up time and time again about Clarissa Eden, people say we won't see her like again. Uh, so really, really interesting, just insight into... A very different time in politics. That's coming up next. But first, a special extended edition of Finkovich. <laughs> Meet the Cerberus of columnists, the Janus of journalism, and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkovich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. They're not just on Times Radio, they are in Times Radio. They are both in the studio. Welcome, Danny. Daniel Finkelstein. Thank you very much, Matt. And David Ivanovich making your debut. It's really distracting in here, isn't it? I mean, when I'm at home, I'm just looking at your visages, really, and then the kind of the garden behind. In here, it's like coming into a model village. There's a kind of complete studio outside where people write all match all his jokes, by the way, just in case you think he's kind of <laughs> if original. Only. If only. Number. Fantastic views over the Thames. And in here... Loads of screens and lights and stuff like that, which is very, very distracting. I have one thing to say uh, to the guy who says that they didn't put his car up on bricks. If you think about it, that must be the most difficult way of stealing the third and fourth wheel on a car that you can possibly imagine. Well, if the... If the... If what the... If... But but you take one off and you put the bricks on so it always stays up at that height. Do you mean not... No, because if you think about it, that's absolutely down on the remaining wheels. Where do you get the bricks from? That's what I want to know. 
They carry them around. Yeah. By the way, uh, the good, you said my <laughs> Gavin Barwell's um, memoirs were stolen from my car. Fortunately, they left behind a very large book on the Holocaust, which had been borrowed from the House of Lords Library. And not only that, it wasn't even borrowed by me. It was borrowed by David Owen and lent to me. So it would have been incredibly embarrassing. But fortunately, they were interested in the Brexit negotiations, but not interested in the Holocaust. It's a weird thing to steal, though, isn't it? Gavin Barwell's book. But is it good? Actually, I think it is good, uh, but I don't suppose they'd read the reviews before they... Uh, but also, started. I saw you explaining on Twitter why you'd got it in the car. <laughs> yeah, that's almost as eccentric as anything else. So I'm listening to it on, uh, on audiobook, and I like to have it with me because you can't go back <laughs> on an audiobook, and sometimes I thought I've missed a bit or I want to remind myself of something, so I carry the book around with me. <laughs> Normally I've got it on the Kindle, I've got my Kindle with me, but that isn't the case with this because it's a signed copy. So there you go. So that, you, I had to... If you hear a good bit, you pull over in the car yeah. and uh, no, put the caller down. no. When I'm actually driving, I put it on the seat. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 gather pull, I do pull over. I, I do pull over yeah. occasionally to note things down or read things. Yes, it I is gather true. the sex scenes are a bit steamy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we all got screwed by the end, didn't we? Uh, anyway, anyway, let's um, keep those coming in. Your suggestions, your your things you've uh, your weird things you've had stolen. Eight seven two type the word times. Uh, tweet me at Times Radio. Uh, let's talk about the weight of history. Um, the, 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 particularly, it seems an odd thing, this is the weight of history in Alok Sharma, but he has had the weight of history on his shoulders, David. What I, what I was interested in about this was, a lot of the time we talk about politics as a bit of a game. You know, who's up, who's down, who's doing what, and so on, they're in, they're out, someone's secretary of this for five weeks, and then they have to resign over something. Um, but every now and again, what they have to do is really, really important. You remember Tony Blair, the Good Friday Agreement, saying, I feel the weight of history. I'm not trying to, I don't want to use a cliche, but weight of history is on my <laughs> hand of history is on my shoulder and so on, whatever it was. And it was. It just absolutely was. Again, when he had to make the speech after 9-11 to the TUC, uh, the TUC uh, the short speech and so on, and then later, it was a really kind of significant moment. What he said and did mattered, not just kind of now, but mattered for years to come and so on. Uh, and we've had several such kinds of moments, really, where it's been... And I thought that with Alec Sharma, when he was tearing up a bit at the end of, of COP, which was, I think he probably, during the process, really come to understand, as many more people did, just how important and vital and totally central all this is etc. And he did feel that weight of history. I wonder what you thought about that, Danny, because uh, um, because you've been close to some of these people. Yeah, I do. I do think um, he did feel that. Interestingly, when he'd taken the COVID press conferences, I hadn't been very impressed with Alex Sharma, and I was a bit surprised he was appointed to this. I thought maybe he was being sidelined. But lots of people in government told me, you know, he's actually a very bright guy um, and probably was the right person. And I, I think he did do quite a good job. I mean, I think it was just intrinsically very hard, uh, that job. It reinforces my view that in the end, what's going to relieve the situation if indeed anything does, will be technological developments, that it's actually the scientists who are going to uh, solve or not solve uh, this problem. But nevertheless, I'm sure he did... Uh, it was interesting how deeply he felt even the small compromise they had to make at the end and felt that that was a failure and felt that he'd had uh, the responsibility um, for trying to negotiate something better. So, uh, And it was also interesting the reaction to that. He clearly had the sympathy of the... Um, of the hall with him on it. So um, he'd clearly done a good job in bringing people round to him. So I think people like him. So, I, But I also just meant was the, if you like, the kind of the size of the responsibility. Yes. I mean, some people wear responsibility very so lightly that you think actually they're not really aware of what it is. 
You know, they've so, got to wear so, Some people wear it so light, as lightly as they wear their suits, uh, as uh, is the case of the Prime Minister. Uh, yeah, I mean, or, 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 or appear... It, it appears either not to bother them at all or they don't kind of see it in that way or it's, a, it's an easy yeah, thing. No. So I'm really struck at those moments when you when they have become fully aware of just what an important thing it is they're doing and how it's going to have such a huge effect it's on people's certainly, lives. Look, it's certainly been my experience in the Prime Ministers I've dealt with that they have felt very keenly that they have responsibility for people's lives and for very big issues and at particular big moments. That's definitely the case. And um, it definitely, you know, that... that when you're Prime Minister, you you don't get relief from that very much at all. It's one of the reasons everyone always goes, oh, they really like checkers. I think checkers is the one place where they can probably do that work and get some form of relief at the same time. So it's one of the reasons... But I also like wondered, do you, do you, I don't know whether you remember that Chris Rock comic routine about the mate of his who says, you know... I'm, he's, he's going to run for president, and Chris Rock says, "What on earth would you have a? Would you think you could be president for? You know, you don't kind of kind of walk along the street and somebody says, who do you think would be president?' So you know, I think it'd be really good. It'd be me, uh, uh, and so on. And yet, somebody effectively has to, you know, who'd be really good at running large bits of the world with the incredible complexity and total responsibility. It's going to be me. I mean, I'm the guy for it, and so on. You think, well, the very person <laughs> who says that probably has a screw loose, so you don't want to give them the job. That's the old kind of. That's the old kind of joke. And then at this moment. It is you, and you do have the responsibility. Are you really up to it? I would have such a feeling of, no, um, totally wrong, uh, yeah. give it to someone else. It's interesting, because they certainly, all the people I'm talking about, have got a fairly healthy self-belief, actually. So I do, I do think that probably is required, and you do have to think, yes, I actually could make these uh, decisions. And I think it's a relatively good system, whereby the people that get there often are the people among... You know the the small group of people you probably would choose to do that in in terms of in terms of the the pool the pool of people right because you've got to start with the pool of members of parliament. Um, we've obviously got another discussion as to whether or not a parliamentary system is the is the best way of choosing an executive leader. But if you do, then from among those people, they probably are the better people. I'd say this one's broken down a little bit in recent years, but, but still. But it's inter interesting point because I remember interviewing uh, Tony Blair once about specifically about the ninety seven campaign and how they sort of relentless uh, uh, war on complacency. So they constantly, you know, behaved as if they were going to lose again, right, despite the fact the polls all the way through were sort of saying they were vomit of it. And speaking to him about watching the results coming in, uh, and I remember he said that as the first results come in, uh, because Labour seats tend to count more quickly, at one point it was sort of 100 Labour seats and one Tory, and he was the only person in Britain hoping that there would be going to be more Tory, wishing that Tories would be more Tory. But he sort of talked about a sort of real gulp moment. He was so focused on the campaign that when he then walks up Downing Street, this is all suddenly a bit real. There's a, there's a moment when you sort of walk in and think, oh, blimey. It's not, like you said, David, it's not just the sort of Westminster political game of who's up and who's down and who's got a good writer no, in I the said, Guardian. That's it. He goes on to the South Bank and says, a new dawn has broken, does it not? And I don't know whether, does the B-U-G-G-E-R word count as a word I can't use <laughs> on this programme? Because I've never... Uh... They're not listening. It's he's looking. He's looking. Like... He's looking through the glass <laughs> to find out. Well, if I was in, you know, a new dawn has broken. Has broken? Has it not? And then in your mind, oh bugger. Yeah. <laughs> and then you walk in, and then it's one of the first or second things they do is start talking to you about lettuce and nuclear submarines and, and and all that sort of thing. But I suppose at least if you're prime minister, you're aware slightly of your place in history. Literally, you know, you know the line. If you're Alok Sharma, 
Like you said, Tony, I mean, not the most impressive person at the press conference. A slightly dull, perfectly pleasant, but slightly dull man suddenly catapulted into Absolutely. David, I saving think the planet. When you ask the question, you know, oh, has the system broken down? We have changed the system. And the way that we've changed the system is that, that instead of it being chosen by parliamentary party, it's now chosen by members. And I, I don't think that's a very good change. Uh, I think, by and large, it, it's better for the, the parliamentary party chooses because I think, you know, take the limits of the of the pool of people that you've got out of the question. At, at least those people can make some judgments from seeing those people close up and you'd get different leaders, I think. I was that. all for it, you know, that change to members. I, it was all about involving more people, etc. When Ed Miliband made that infamous change that everybody was down on, I've kept very quiet about this since. I thought, <laughs> yeah, this might be quite a good idea, draw people in, etc. Um, I've had a few second thoughts since then. Yeah, maybe maybe it's not. Well, so let's, let's stick with the House of Commons and uh, one MP in particular, uh, Sir Christopher Chope, uh, knighted for services to being a bloody nuisance in the House of Commons. Uh, he's previously blocked bills uh, that would have made upskirting a criminal events subjected to a bill that would give councils greater scope to take girls at risk of female genital mutilation. He's also stopped female parliamentarians using the Commons Chamber to mark the centenary of women's suffrage. And now. Uh, he's piped up and stopped them uh, overturning the, uh, the... Yes, stopped... He overturned the government's attempt to overturn the attempt to overturn the punishment of Owen Patterson. <laughs> Got lost there somewhere. Um, uh, Danny, Christopher well, Choke, discuss. <laughs> look, it's... Let's start with this. He he has an assertion that there's, we, we legislate too much, uh, that there are too many of such motions and that he should use his power to prevent uh, things going through on the nod. Um, and uh, that would be fine if I thought he was right. Um, you know, if I, if, I, if, I felt that, if I felt that principle was one that should be upheld, I'd kind of uh, be, uh, be pleased at his obstinacy. But he, he should look at... You know, if you look for for a second, he can see that the proportion of things that he's stopping that are actually things that we want to do that even he suggests he actually wants to do um, are greater than the ones that he's the, the ones that he's preventing that he doesn't want. So um, it's just you know he's acting in a the sort of dogmatic and silly way that um, I always disapprove of. Um, so, <laughs> so, so you know, so, uh, in general, so he deserves the criticism that he's. Um, that, that he's getting. By the way, in this particular instance, he's done us a favour. I think it's a good thing there's going to be yet another debate of what the government tried to do. Um, if the government is embarrassed over what happened, it should be embarrassed over it. So I'm not... Of, this, of all the ones that he's done, I, I'm less bothered about this one, actually, than I normally yeah, am. Yeah, what I was interested in about all this was exactly that kind of species of MP. Usually people in very safe seats for whichever their party is. Usually people are long past realising they're never going to get a minister career, whose self-identity is bound up with the business of being a, a nuisance and stopping things from happening and so on. I mean, you used to have people like Eric Forth back in the old days. It's the same thing. Yeah. It's the same principle, by the way. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's absolutely the, the, the yeah. same thing. And in a way, it wouldn't really matter what the actual thing was. I mean, it might be kind of stopping bills you don't like. It might be always making sure that um, members, uh, private members' bills ran out of time as a matter of principle and so on. But they would find, or in the case of Tandiel, accusing everybody of being part of a conspiracy which had to be investigated immediately and so on but they would find some kind of personification they'd find some form of gratification in this if you like the kind of the backwaters of parliamentary politics and that psychology is really quite interesting because 
for quite a lot of MPs, and we talk about second jobs and so on, and etc. But let's face it, for some MPs, there's not a lot to do. <laughs> you know, there's not a vast amount for, for, for them Particularly to do. if you've been an MP for a long time and you've got a safe seat. Yeah, you've got your constituency office up and working. They know how to do it. It doesn't raise that many problems anyway because it's some, some kind of leafy part of Gloucestershire, etc. where the biggest problem is whether the silage has been taken in, you know, etc. <laughs> uh, there really isn't very much for the guy to do. So he has to either invent something or he has to become a barrister. And so where do you think this all ends up, uh, Danny? I, mean, I suppose your point about where we get to have the row again about sleaze and, and all of that, but um, it, it does appear to be damaging the government in the polls well it, <clears throat> look I, my view is that this issue is a lot about time for a change it, it of course the issue itself is a debate that we have from time to time we've all had the debate about second jobs several times um, and we're having it again mainly because it is a manifestation of the fact that government's been in power quite a long time uh, and yeah. when that happens you generally speaking get moves against the government this the conservative party has for various different reasons um, been fairly immune to that to the pendulum effect but that is now happening um, I, I think it's politically significant not in itself but just as a manifestation of that and it is one of the things that will determine the election by itself i think that the pendulum effect that the, this uh, time for a change effect puts the next election in play between the tory majority and not having one uh, just by itself and and you know i've had i've had some people who do political modeling look at precisely that with the tory majority a kind of ordinary time for a change swing over a period of years <laughs> would bring you into that vicinity of about 4% swing where the Tories would lose their majority. And that, so what we're... That's what I think we should... When you look at these things and you try to think what the political impact of them are, try to distinguish between the signal of it, um, which is time for a change, and the noise, which is the particular issue, the ups and downs of that week, you know, whether Kwasi Kwarteng said this or that. Those are all important in themselves, by the way, that they, they ought to be discussed because of what they say about the individuals. And, and so I'm not sort of saying they're irrelevant, but I'm just saying when you look at the political impact yeah. in two years' time of this, that's, what, that's the way you've got to do it. I just had this fugitive thought about political modelling since you mentioned political modelling, wondering if it was anything like clothes modelling. You know, sort of, <laughs> so here, in comes Sir Christopher Chopin, he's wearing a rather lovely bit of negativity there. Well, you know, sort of a... Somebody, well, I can't remember what it was that he did wrong, somebody hung, uh, hung women's pants outside yeah, the his upskirting. office. I think it was over upskirting, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and he came, he arrived at his office and there were uh, women's pants hanging outside. So anyway, maybe that's what... And he had to ask modeling. what they were. <laughs> Uh, lovely stuff. Well, we, we will do some more uh, Finkovich uh, in just a moment because I'm in the studio, so I thought we'd do the, the, the whole half an hour uh, with them. Uh, let me just bring you a bit more of what's been happening in Westminster this morning. We'll get some more from the former professional critica, cricketer, as in Rafiq's evidence to the uh, Common Select Committee. He was speaking about the former England captain, Michael Vaughan, who's been accused by three players of selling there were too many of you lot, meaning Asian cricketers. Michael might not remember it, as I said about earlier, because it doesn't mean anything to him. But three of us, myself, Adil and Rana, have, we remember it. I've spoke to Adil at length about this. Um, and Michael to use this platform at the Daily Telegraph uh, to try and discredit before even um, anything being spoken about was, again, he clearly had a, a snippet of my statement. Uh, I was promised that anyone, when I make allegations about people, they, it will be put to them. And when the allegations are made about me, it will be put to me. That process wasn't followed for me. Um, so he used this platform at the Daily Telegraph to 
tell everyone that he hadn't said these things, but then to go on and put a snippet of my statement out and then uh, talk about other things I thought um, was completely wrong. Um, like I said, he probably doesn't remember it because it doesn't mean anything to him. Uh, that was Azim Rafiq giving evidence to the Commons Select Committee about the former England cri uh, cricket captain, Michael Vaughan. And we'll keep an ear on uh, on that throughout the, the morning here on Times Radio as more revelations uh, come out. Uh, we'll speak to uh, Finkelvich uh, some more next. This is Matt Jolly on Times Radio in association with Strive UK for Mastercard. Find out more at mastercard.co.uk forward slash strive. Times Radio with Matt Chorley. Morning, nice to have you with us. Still joined by Finkovich, Daniel Finkelstein and David Ivanovich in the studio. Let's turn our attention to uh, dramatic matters now. Uh, should Jews play Jews? Uh, David. Well, I, I raise this because the whole business of who should play what uh, has been kind of, I say kind of raging, sort of raging uh, in, in, in recent years for all kinds of reasons. And it's hit the Jewish community now with um, uh, a, a Jewish woman comedian, Sarah Silverman, saying, look, why are everybody's thinking about why people can't play each other? You know, famously, West Side Story, the woman who's going to play Maria wasn't allowed to play Maria or didn't allow herself to play Maria because she wasn't Latino um, uh, and so on. Then we have this new drama with Will Ferrell and uh, Sunday Judd, I think his name. I can't write Rudd. I can't remember his name. Paul Playing, Rudd. Paul Rudd. Sexiest Paul, man in the world. Paul Rudd. Sexy. Yeah, no wonder I can't remember. Etc. Kind of, you know, that's the sort of thing. That goes <laughs> After he took your, your head, title. That's right. That's, that's, that's right. Once you've been demoted, you know, you just kind of try and get over it. And um, uh, and they're not Jewish, but they're playing a Jewish psychotherapist. Okay, bit of a cliche there, but anyway, it's a true story, and the patient, and so on, and they're also playing them as quite Jewish people, which is what is called Jew face these days, I gather, and um, and some Jewish people have been objecting to this, or at least saying double standards apply. And I have to say, personally, I have a big worry about this because my view is. It has been increasingly over the years. Let anybody play anybody. Actors are paid to act, and actually increasingly, because of the way life works, possibly sometimes the only contact some actors will have with Jews is if they're asked to play them. Um, in other words, they might learn something from the process and other people might learn something from the process. But then I thought, well, Danny, am I way out of whack here? I mean, should we actually ask, get actors far more to, to act the things that they most identify with? No, but it is, it is true is that you sometimes see people play Jews... And you think to yourself, you're really not Jewish, and that isn't actually a Do portrayal. You? Of, yes, I actually, I mean, I know this will sound a terrible thing, but I always thought the father in Friday Night Dinner was like obviously not Jewish. Whereas I did think uh, some of the other characters did manage to play Jewish characters quite well, um, and they were none of them Jewish. One of them, one of them had a sort of Jewish background, but they were none of them Jewish. So it was, it was, um, it's a very tricky one. This my view is that. Um, Anybody can play anybody as long as they do it well. Yeah. One of the problems with playing people and, and of colour, by the way, if you're not of colour, is that you, is that you look preposterous. And so I understand why uh, people think that's a caricature rather yeah. than a portrayal, and they object to it for that reason. So there is a slight difference, I think, between um, you know between what's called minstrelsy and and this, um, because actually I completely understand the offence that's caused. And sometimes I do get offended by people who are not Jewish playing caricature Jews. I do. But, by the way, being offended, um, you know, sometimes you're offended by things and yeah, it's not yeah. the end of the world that either. That was Danny Finkelstein and David Ivanovich and of course you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Box. Up next, 
we remember Clarissa Eden. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, we've got the sad news this week of the death of Clarissa Eden, the wife of former Prime Minister Anthony Eden, at the age of 101. So what we thought we'd do today is take a look back over her life with her longtime friend, the journalist and author, Hugo Vickers. Uh, first of all, Hugo, um, condolences to you and uh, all of her family and friends. I know you'd known her for a long time. Just sum up for me how, how, how you'll best remember her. Well, uh, that remark that you won't see her like again is absolutely true. She was most unusual. Um, She thought in a different way from other people. She was uh, quite sharp. She was incisively intelligent. Um, I think she had what I like to call a quality of positive negativity. There were many things in life that she disliked. Uh, And in a very enjoyable way. I mean, I remember, for example, if I asked her about a play that she'd seen, if she said, well, it was banal, it was predictable, I would always say, well, I'm rushing off to see it immediately. You know, that'll be great fun. Um, <laughs> very good sense of humour. Um, and she, uh, and I felt terribly privileged to be a friend because she selected her friends in, very selectively. You know, she, she didn't, there were lots of people she didn't really bother with. And so it was kind of incredibly flattering. I don't know really why she chose me, but we got on extremely well for a very long period. And we had a lot of fun together. Well, let's let's try and piece together for people who don't know. An extraordinary life, 101 years, uh, you know, an extraordinarily long life. Um, but let's let's sort of piece it together. Let's start at the beginning then. Born on uh, June the 28th, 1920, the only daughter of John Churchill, of course, the younger brother of Winston Churchill. Uh, she worked with Winston Churchill um, at Chequers during the war. But what was it? Was that Churchill connection something that she enjoyed? Uh, that's a very good question. Um... I mean, Jack Churchill, her father, was actually um, a stockbroker and he was a partner of my grandfather's in a firm called Vickers de Costa, which was why Sir Winston Churchill was, in fact, a, a client of my grandfather's. And there's a lot of correspondence between them about stocks and shares and things like that. Um, I don't think that she felt tremendously drawn towards the Churchill family, um, but she she uh, certainly you know, did spend a lot of time with with Sir Winston. And, of course, later on, this rather encroached on her life because when she was 
jumping ahead a bit, when she was married to Anthony Eden, of course, there was a long phase when Winston Churchill simply refused to retire, you know, so that by the time Anthony Eden took over as prime minister, it was kind of in a way too late. He wasn't very well by that point. And then the Suez crisis followed, as you know. But um, yes, I mean, she, 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 was, she was a Churchill, but she was very, very much her own person. I mean, she, you know, she, but I think her advantage maybe was perhaps like, okay, she was a Churchill. So she therefore had the opportunity to meet all the great men of her age. She was also extremely beautiful, very well read and very intelligent with a very good sense of art and literature. And, and so in a way she had that ideal combination, you know, well-connected, intelligent and very beautiful. So people were very much drawn to her. She also had a quality of aloofness in so much as she once said that when she was young, she really never actually spoke unless she had something to say. And therefore, quite a long time, she, she quite often spent, you know, completely quiet, which which found, some people found disconcerting. <laughs> the, the, the two um, words that seem to uh, crop up a lot, particularly talking about her, her, her younger years, um, are uh, beautiful and bohemian. Yes. Bohemian is this word which gets used a lot, which seems very much of its time, uh, you know, very glamorous as well too, and, and rubs shoulders with a sort of, this incredible cast list of, of people, Evelyn Wall, Cecil Beaton, Lucien Freud, Isaiah Berlin, Orson Welles, uh, even becoming friends with that great recluse uh, Greta Garbo. Oh, yes. Well, that was extraordinary, of course. I mean, uh, I wrote a biography of Cecil Beaton, so that was a big point of contact. And, you know, she she talked a lot about Garbo. And as Cecil Beaton said, you know, Garbo, again, could be very aloof and difficult. I was thinking, you know, if anyone was ever to play Clarissa in a film, gosh, it would have Garbo would have been the ideal person to do it because they were very similar in many ways. But Garbo um, didn't always sort of rise to the occasion, but she certainly turned on her charm full blast whenever Clarissa was around. <laughs> and um, Clarissa used to say, you know, used to go through this awfully tiresome process of sort of picking up the telephone, ringing it three times, putting it down, picking it up again and so forth before Garbo would answer the telephone. And then she said rather, she was rather um, disappointed that when she was married to the foreign secretary and went to New York, invited Garbo to lunch. There was Garbo waiting outside the restaurant. And as she said, I thought she was better than that. In other <laughs> words, she didn't think that Garbo would fall for, you know, being impressed by her being the wife of the foreign secretary. And that sort of slightly tipped the balance. Well, it was, it was sort of interesting because she sort of swapped the, the glamorous world that she was inhabiting. But like you said, for the slightly less glamorous world of, of, of politics, uh, she became the second Mrs Eden. In uh, 1952, like when you said when Anthony Eden was was foreign secretary, um, yes. they get married. They held their wedding reception in 10 Downing Street. That's quite a, you know, <laughs> anyone who's ever tried to find a venue for a wedding reception, that that's hard to beat. I'd have thought. Well, it helps if your uncle's prime minister and living there at the time. I think. <laughs> of course, they, they, you know, she was welcomed into this dynasty. I mean, one of her great friends, James Pope Hennessy, always thought that, you know, that this sort of what we call bohemian, I would actually say even hope bohemian life that she was living, that she was in a way a little bit wasted and that she could have been, um, you know, one of the great political hostesses. He, he saw that in her. She was very reluctant to marry Anthony Eden and she did turn him down the first time. And then having, having accepted, um, she became the most amazingly um, dutiful and supportive wife. There are many people who thought that she was, you know, more intelligent than him, even in a sense, more politically astute than he was in certain respects. And they went through a terrible time, as you know, with the Suez crisis. And then, of course, his health broke down. And then she looked after him 
very, very lovingly and caringly for the rest of his life. He died in 1977. And during that phase, you know, she never went to the theatre or the opera because he didn't like it. But the moment that he died, she then resumed that early, what I call, hope bohemian life. And she went back to that as well. But I, mean, I suppose, I mean, I was sort of slightly joking about politics not being as, as glamorous as the world she was in, but they were a glamour couple, weren't they? I mean, Anthony Eden, and we've we've talked about him on the show when we've done, we're doing a Prime Minister every week, and Anthony Eden is probably, probably one of the best looking uh, Prime Ministers we've, we've uh, had. And together they were quite the glamour couple, weren't they? Oh, yes. I mean, he was extremely good looking and very elegant and very, very well dressed. And um, despite the fact that he had, you know, a huge lunch and, and sort of tea and then dinner, he kept his figure in the most extraordinary oh, way all through his life. I awful, mean, awful, man. Fair, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but he had this extraordinary weight, and you, you, you touched on this, this extraordinary weight to become Prime Minister, um, uh, made more difficult by the fact it was his uncle-in-law who kept promising him some, what, dozen times uh, Winston Churchill promised to go. I mean, it makes, it, it makes the Blair-Brown waiting game sort of pale in comparison almost. I think it was awful, actually. I mean, I think Winston Churchill played a sort of cat and mouse game with them. I mean, he was always on the point of retiring and then then decided, well, he better stay on for something else and for something else. And then eventually he did finally step down. Um, yeah, that, that must have been very difficult. And it means to say that, of course, Anthony Eden's political career, which uh, was extraordinary. And I mean, he was in a, you know, he goes right back into the 20s and 30s and things. And, and, and you know, he was a very good foreign secretary. Of course, the 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 difficult time with Suez has sort of rather eclipsed some of his many other qualities, I think. She was, by the way, very fiercely protective of him. And it's very interesting that, you know, she helped a number of biographers. She wasn't always terribly pleased with the results. She very much liked the <laughs> D.R. Thorpe book. But um, she would go to great trouble to write to uh, medical experts and, and doctors to find out, you know, the various, uh, you know, states that his health was in and, and what this would mean and whether this would have affected his political judgment. But she was a great um, supporter of him, very loyal to him forevermore. Do we know if she made direct appeals to her uncle to to get out of number 10 and, and let Anthony have a go? Was that something that she, did she get involved in the sort of the political machinations in that way? And, you know, funny enough, I don't think she did. Uh, I think she certainly was involved in 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 advising Anthony Eden quite a lot. I mean, I've seen letters that she's written to him and uh, giving him bits of advice and things here and there. So she was very much, but she was very much. I think that somebody like her would have always been a figure behind the scenes. You know, you know, the, the woman's influence can be. This is going to be very unfashionable for your younger female listeners, but in those days, that's how women operated. They they were behind the scenes, and they and they were. Um, influencing the the politician privately at home and letting him be the the main figure. I mean, she wasn't a, a feminist in that respect. So, um, in, in terms of the timeline, he finally, like you said, he finally becomes prime minister in 1955. Calls an election, incre it increases the government's majority from 17 to 60. So that, you know, got off to a a, yes. a, a good start. How did she then settle into that role, as you describe it, as sort of Prime Minister's wife, as, you know, not quite the sort of host? I mean, it's always been, I mean, even today, it's a slightly awkward job. You you sort of don't, unlike in America, where there's the sort of first lady, it's a sort of semi-constitutional uh, role, if you like. Um, how did she settle into that? And, and um, you know, did she find the Eisenhowers and de Gaulle's that she met as entertaining as some of the, the glamorous artists that she used to rub shoulders with? 
Well, I rather think she did, yes. I mean, she was a very good, um, very good hostess. She had an impeccable taste and um, was able to, to do all that extremely well. Um, the, I've never seen it, but I gather that there is a very interesting um, clip on the television when years later she goes round number 10 Downing Street in the days of Cherie Blair to look at what one might call the improvements. And although <laughs> she doesn't actually say anything, somebody who, who saw the programme said, you could just see what she was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> um, she had perfect taste, really, really wonderful, wonderful taste. In fact, of course, it was very funny because living next to, more or less next to Cecil Beaton, um, and she had to put up with people saying, oh, you're so lucky to have Cecil Beaton living next to you. And of course, he stole all her ideas for his garden. And uh, <laughs> and I asked her once, you know, did you, did you make a special effort if Cecil Beaton came round? And she sort of said, well, reluctantly, yes. You know, and he'd come in and say sort of, oh, 10 out of 10, Clarissa, if she'd done, you know, created a new winter garden or something. But um, and then, of course, what was also very funny was that um, when Cecil Beaton had a very serious stroke and he was terribly ill, you know, from 1974 onwards, um, she and others used to tell him the most um, shocking gossip, you know, to get him going, uh, uh, you know, with sheer knowledge that he, he, he wouldn't be able to repeat it. And then, of course, he got better. <laughs> <laughs> And began to come out with it, much to their horror. <laughs> oh, uh, so that's 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 a that's a good a, a good life uh, tip there. To be careful with the gossip you pass on. We should we should just discuss uh, Hugo because we should just discuss um, Suez, which you you've touched on. Um, it's it's the it's the thing which has come to define uh, Anthony Eden's uh, premiership, uh, wrestling with the, the sort of economic political fallout of the Suez crisis, and she is perhaps best known. Uh, for actually it was quite a rare political speech that she gave um, in Gateshead in 1956, where she passed comment on on uh, Suez, saying, in the past few weeks, I, I really felt, felt as if the Suez Canal was running through my drawing room. Um, how, yes. how did that comment go down at the time? Uh, well, it's it's always repeated. And I think she, she said later, you know, that she thought perhaps drawing room was rather an unfortunate part of it, you know, because it sort of made them look a little bit uh, remote, perhaps. Um, but she said many, many other more interesting things in the in the course of her life. I can assure you. Um. <laughs> well, we will we will come on to some more of those and a bit of the life after after number ten in just a moment. And speaking to Hugo Vickers, remembering Clarissa Eden, uh, the wife of the former prime minister Anthony Eden, who's died at the age of one hundred and one. Uh, still to come, we will discuss uh, how the Edens came to meet a young John Prescott, amongst other things. It's Matt Cholly on Times Radio in association with Mastercard Strive, empowering small businesses for a digital future. Matt Chorley on Times Radio with Strive UK from Mastercard. Empowering small businesses for a digital future. Find out more at mastercard.co.uk slash strive. Good morning, it's Matt Chorley on Times Radio. Still joined by Hugo Vickers, a long-standing friend of Clarissa Eden, uh, the wife of the former Prime Minister, Anthony Eden, uh, who sadly she's died at the age of 101. Uh, so, uh, Hugo, um, we were just discussing Anthony Eden's premiership. He'd waited for it for so long. And then it all comes to a rather abrupt end. Yes, it did. Um, I mean, the Suez crisis was 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 the reason for that. And um, I think some people feel that he he um, uh, sort of misunderstood or, or felt that Britain was a bigger power in the world than it actually was at that particular time. And he you know, was hoping the Americans were going to come in and support, and they didn't. Anyway, as you know, it all went wrong. And at the same time, his health was failing. And so he resigned in 1957. And uh, one detail uh, which really st- uh, stuck out to me, and maybe this speaks to the, the glamour of the time, but as his health was deteriorating, they went on holiday to Goldeneye, the Jamaican home of Ian Fleming. 
Yes, they did. Absolutely. There's lots of photographs of that visit. Um, and Anne Fleming, um, Ian Fleming's wife, was a great friend uh, um, of Clarissa's. Um, she was, had been married to Lord Rothermere before, and they were, they were great friends. I mean, I mean, of course, she knew, she knew absolutely everybody, but um, they were <laughs> particularly good friends for, for quite a long time, actually. It makes today's questions about the Prime Minister and where he goes on holiday sort of, you know, uh, pale into comparison, really, going to, gold, going to actual GoldenEye. Um, and, <laughs> I don't think GoldenEye was very comfortable, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what role did then she, behind the scenes, do we know that she played in, in his decision to, to resign as Prime Minister, having waited so long for it? Well, I think it was inevitable that, that he had to step down at that point. I mean, because he wasn't in a very good, very, very good state. Um, but of course, after that, she looked after him extremely well. And as I think you were about to say, probably off they went on a on a on a on a sort of cruise and ended up on going to New Zealand, where guess what? There was one of the cabin stewards was none other than a youthful nineteen-year-old John Prescott. <laughs> what impact did the uh, the uh, Edens, the former former prime minister and his wife, what impact did they have on a young John Prescott? He described Eden as an old Tory gent, civil, nice and kind, but found Clarissa a different kettle of fish. I suspect he probably found her a little bit um, authoritarian, I guess. But he did say she had very shapely legs, as indeed she did. <laughs> yeah, but learning almost as much about John Prescott, I think, in that than the, um, uh, the, 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 themselves. Uh, meanwhile, of course, so he, he, he resigns um, in part because of uh, ill health. Um, and is replaced by Howard, Howard Macmillan. The, the, the Edens sort of had a long-running uh, feud with Macmillan almost, and, and uh, Clarissa Eden in particular describing his a, politics as a beastly profession because her, her preferred, her friend, Rab Butler, was overlooked for, for the job of Prime Minister. Yes, well, she was no friend of Harold Macmillan. I tried on several occasions to, to get her to publish um, one or two things that she wrote about Macmillan, but... Um, you know, she was very dignified and didn't do so. But maybe these things will emerge in the fullness of time. Um, so, so she was in her memoirs. She just said um, that when Macmillan used to come down to see Anthony Eden um, and in Wiltshire, um, she said, I drove him back to the station, um, remaining as silent as possible. And she said, I think people will know what they mean. Well, they don't quite. I mean, it was she really did not like Macmillan. It was <laughs> not at all sorry when he fell during the Profumo crisis a few years later. It's interesting that the power of silence seems to be a, a, a sort of a thread that runs through this. From a young age, you know, she wouldn't say anything unless she really had something to say. Uh, and, and not saying something and leaving someone to squirm is just as powerful sometimes as giving them a, a dressing down. Uh, well, then, um, as, as, as you explained, uh, sadly, then in 1977, uh, Anthony Eden uh, died in uh, January that year. She'd um, been looking after him since his, his resignation. She sort of then returned to her earlier interests um, like opera um, and so on. Uh, and then it was sort of around, the, around that time that you sort of became friends with her too. Yes, I think, I think so. She... she um... As I said before, she hadn't gone to the opera or the theatre because Anthony didn't like it. And so suddenly, as a widow, she was free to do all those things. She also took up deep sea diving. I think she <laughs> rather enjoyed, I think she said on one occasion that she enjoyed what she saw under the, on the ocean's bed, sometimes rather more than she did on dry land. You know, um, and then opera very much. I used to go often with to the opera with her. She was a great friend of Lord Goodman, and he used to have opera evenings. And a, an American friend called Nin Ryan, and went to lots of wonderful, wonderful operas. And George Weidenfeld, her um, my then publisher and her her great friend as well. He was another great opera lover. I, I think probably that um, uh, that's. I think as a certain kind of person like her is fortunate enough to be able to do it. Is that 
uh, traveling to see as much of the world as possible, remote places that you've read about, particularly with wonderful architectural features, and then opera, which is surely the sort of highest combination of theater and music, um, is what appeals to really intelligent people. They spend hours and hours and hours sitting in the opera. They love it. Um, and just funny because you, you spent so long uh, talking to her. I'm just I just wonder what she made of of uh, how politics unfolded over the subsequent uh, decades. What did she make of the current crop of uh, of politicians? Well, the current pro- pro- uh, crop of politicians rather passed her by because very sadly, um, having had this absolutely brilliant brain, the last few years um, she was well aware that her memory was going. So, you know, although she did read the newspapers every day, she didn't really take these figures in in quite the same way as she would have done before. But I can only imagine she would have been somewhat disproving. <laughs> Yeah, my sense is she might have given Boris Johnson a long uh, silence. Um, what about what about other other politicians, sort of further back? Uh, what politicians that she liked? You mean? Yeah, liked or, or particularly dis- disliked? I suppose she seems to be someone who. Um, uh, tell you one politician she very much liked, and I remember seeing her with him sometime. But again, there was an interest in opera. <clears throat> was Edward Heath, who had been chief whip under Anthony Eden at one point, and they remained very good friends <clears throat> all all through right up to the end. Um, saw a lot of each other. Um, interesting friendship, but she she plucked people rather sort of unusually from different <laughs> worlds, which was so nice. I mean, she was a great admirer of Harold Pinter. She loved his plays. I mean, she thought he was wonderful. She was, um, you know, she 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 met um, actually she met through me. She met Robert Harris, and she used to always go to his book launches. And she thought he was uh, very politically astute and lo- loved reading his books. But you know, she did also have a, a, a rather unexpected side. That I remember talking to her once, and it suddenly became clear that. She was a great fan of the television series Dallas because she really liked all that. I think she thought it was genuine. She liked all those oil barons talking about their daddies, you know. Amazing. <laughs> what, a, what a brilliant insight, Hugo. And Hugo, I should point out, because we've been chatting uh, via Zoom, there's a, there's a beautiful photograph of uh, Clarissa Eden on the, on the sideboard behind you. There is indeed. And, and she was photographed by many, um, many brilliant photographers. That one particular one was taken by Horst. And she... Um, was also photographed, of course, very much by Cecil Beaton and others. I mean, she was she was uh, really was one of the great beauties of her age. Um, absolutely, and it's been lovely to speak to you to sort of pick over that uh, that history and her extraordinary uh, place in it. Hugo Vickers, uh, thanks so much for joining us on Times Radio. Thank you, uh, Hugo Vickers. There, remembering Cl- uh, Clarissa Eden, uh, the wife of Anthony Eden, who's died at the age of one hundred and one. And there's a tremendous uh, obituary of Clarissa Eden online at thetimes.co.uk. As ever, the Times uh, obituaries are always a quite a thing but this is a particular um, uh, one which is well worth reading you can go online and uh, and take a look at that that's all we've got time for on this episode of the red box podcast don't forget you can listen to me live monday to friday 10 till 1 on times radio and we bring you the best bits here on the podcast and if you're feeling particularly nice why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from <laughs> 